Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Well, welcome back to the Midweek Bible Study. If you were with us last week, we explained, but Dr. Rick Hunter can't be with us for a while. Uh, He wishes he could, but he has other jobs, and they actually pay money. Uh, He's been volunteering and doing this on Uh, out of the goodness of his heart, but also he would like to direct some of you to his YouTube channel, which is Sunforce, all one word, S-O-N, Sunforce Media. Have a look there. He's got a couple of things there that have not been part of our safe harbor, uh, our website, and he's going to put more things there, so subscribe and encourage him, all right? But we'll be doing, I'll be flying solo for a few weeks, and hope you're able to tolerate that. We are in Mark chapter 11. Verse 1, we have a lot of work to do, so let's just get started. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Now, this is one of two events that occur about the same time. And there's just a little lesson I would like to to all of us to absorb a bit. How did Jesus know there was a cult that had never been written? How did Jesus later, says when you go to prepare the Passover, you're going to find a guy carrying a jug of water. Follow that guy. He's going to take you to an upper room that's all prepared. And there's no explanation of how this was set up ahead of time. And maybe that's a good thing because the fact is God has prepared the road for us. He is out ahead of us. And yes, sometimes the road dips and turns and throws us sideways, but he's got another road prepared there. You can't out prepare God. He's going to find a way if you're still willing to work with him to get you where he needs you to be. And God had already set this up and let Jesus know, if we understand correctly, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he could confidently tell these people, when you go in, you're going to find this. Why is this so very important? Not said as such in Mark, um, but a really big part of Jewish history is that riding on an unridden colt, or, and that also applies to donkey, the colt to donkey as well as horses, uh, was a sign of being a king, that you did not walk into the city, you rode in, and specifically on a beast that had never been ridden before. And it's, it's complicated, there's a lot of Semitic history and folklore behind this, but everybody understood what that meant when you entered a city in that way. So Jesus has just now lit a fire under his apostles, because if you remember from last week, they, they've been kind of whipsawed around in their head about, we're going to be, you're going to die? And wait, you're being handed to Gentiles? Wait, wait, religious leaders? Our religious leaders 
are going to condemn you to death. They're not even allowed to do that. All of these things are crashing in their head. And now Jesus says, basically, this is what they would hear. All right, I'm riding in as king. Ready? <laughs> I bet they trotted to see who could get to the colt first. When they, they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? As they would. They answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now, the, the many cloaks on it, I don't know if you've ridden on a donkey. Um, th their backs aren't round, like horses' backs are, are more round. They're sharp. So blankets are kind of a necessity when you're doing this. So to make it more comfortable, they, they, they threw their cloaks over it. And by the way, that was a great sacrifice because you generally owned only one cloak and one undergarment. And so, and the undergarment's not like your boxers. It's a full length thing. But still, you are sacrificing here because you can't just go down to Walmart and get another cloak because this one smells like donkey now. It is, um, it's a sign of how much they loved Jesus and how much hope they had in him. And they weren't alone. Watch what happens here. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Why, why would you do this? Well, this is going to be um, shown on uh, Valentine's Day. Heads up, guys. This is shown on Valentine's Day. Uh, and so we're heading toward the end of March, which will be Palm Sunday and Easter. They're early this year. And we know the story of laying out the palm fronds, but now we know a little bit more branches as well. I don't know if you've ever watched um, videos or series of people trying to make their way through roads in Africa and Asia that are really basically sticky, horrific mud. And it's a challenge every mile. I've watched things like World's Most Dangerous Roads and, and watched um, people who even try to get motorcycles past it. It's awful. Please remember, these roads around Jerusalem wouldn't be quite that bad, but just a little rain turns them into muck. Uh, you also have a lot of animal exhaust, shall we say, since some children may be in the room. Um, we used to live in Michigan, loved it, absolutely hated the weather, loved the people, loved the state. Uh, and every so often we'd go up to Mackinac Island. Generally speaking, I'd be talking to an FBI group or something like that. Uh, Mackinac Island, if you've never been to Michigan and don't know about it, just lies a, a couple miles off the mainland, but there are no motorized vehicles there. If you call for a taxi, it's a horse-drawn taxi. They also make a lot of fudge there, and you're right in the middle of a great lake. And so there are three competing smells that hit you as soon as you get off the, the boat. Fresh air off the water, kind of salty, fresh water um, mix smell. Uh, smell of fudge. They make, everybody makes fudge. And they give samples, people. You can eat a, a, nearly a pound of, of, of fudge just by doing samples along the road. You're welcome. Um, three, horse exhaust. And I can add a fourth. The, the cleaner they use to keep cleaning the, the streets. Um, it, it's a challenge. And these people are throwing things down 
so that Jesus's path is unhindered by potholes, mud, and other things, shall we say. So once again, this isn't just people being happy. This is people being sacrificial and actually putting their money at risk, knowing it's not going to come back the way it was because I'm putting my cloak down and fixing things. I mean, this, is, this is so far beyond, oh, look, our king has come. This is everybody's last hope has just entered the town. Well, those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. It is an expression which really means save. And it is a, a declarative form. So save us. We are saved. This is our salvation. All of those things, you could translate it that way. But Hosanna doesn't mean praise him. Hosanna means save. All of their hopes right here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, um, a quote out of Psalm 118, if you want to go check that out. Again, not now, we're busy. Uh, verses 25 and 26, if you, you want to take a look at Psalm 118. And then, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Salvation in the highest heaven. Do you remember when Jesus was born? One of those stories that we don't talk about all that much, I'm not really sure why, is when Simeon sees the baby Jesus, what does he say? He says, I have seen the salvation of Israel. Remember what Israel means, those who wrestle with God. I've seen the salvation, and when he saw the baby Jesus. Well, now, the people know this too. The people are ready. They're saying, we have seen, here comes our salvation. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he enters, walks around the temple courts for a while. He looked at everything. Now everything would have been what was going on in the temple and the things going around the temple. The around the temple were often um, uh, shops, and that's going to come into play now. A very famous uh, episode. Jesus decides... It's late in the day. I'm going to come back tomorrow and take care of what I've just seen. So he goes out to Bethany. That's, that's a few miles outside Jerusalem. It's a long day for him. The next day, here's a weird story. It's very difficult for us to grasp. Uh, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. By the way, you're allowed to do that. The Old Testament was very, very plain. Read Leviticus and Deuteronomy in particular. That hungry people were allowed to eat from trees as they passed them. So it's not like you're stealing my figs. No, no. They, they were allowed to eat. And even if it was a, a, an orchard, let's call it, for figs, you were allowed to eat around the edges. You know, so, and this seems to be a tree that wasn't on a particular field of fig trees. So Jesus sees it. He found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Um, isn't that being unreasonable, frankly? Because it's not in season for figs. And if Jesus wants figs, he can make figs by miracles. Can he not? I mean, he's fed people. But there's one thing about 
miracles in Jesus. Don't know if you've ever paid attention to it. He never, ever, ever performs a miracle that benefits him. He feeds the 5,000. No indication he ate anything. He walks on the water to protect the people there. He did no charm, no miracle to protect himself. On and on and on. He never does a miracle to benefit himself. So he's not going to look at it and go, well, behold, it is not the season for figs. Which, remember, he looked and it wasn't, so he's disappointed. So once again, what we said last week, the unanswerable question is what did Jesus know and when did he know it? Here he's making a very human error. Doesn't mean he's not the son of God. It means that that balance between humanity and deity is a really interesting balance and we're not clued in on how it worked and when it worked better than others. But isn't it unreasonable to go, well, then nobody's ever going to eat figs off this tree. Kind of. It's kind of unreasonable. But it's also understandable. Jesus is a ball of emotion right now. He is starting to bear the cup, the pain, the anxiety, the fear, the trepidation, the confusion, and also the competing demands. I got to teach these guys. They're still not getting it. They're still arguing about who gets to sit where. Now I've got to do this. And now I'm heading into Jerusalem to do something pretty radical. And <laughs> I'm just hungry. Can I have some figs? In this sense, it's very, very understandable. In America, they did a series of commercials. I don't know if they're doing it anymore or not, about uh, eating Snickers bars. And it's, it's a candy bar with nuts and chocolate and a little bit of caramel, I think. Um, and the idea is that, you know, you're hangry, which is a made-up word, that you're angry because you're hungry. I don't think I've ever experienced anger because I was hungry, but maybe I'm wrong. It just seemed a weird concept to me. But the fact is you can get out of sorts when you're hungry. Think about it this way. If you've got all these, you've got deadlines coming, you've got people speaking in your ear over here, the phone is, is, is being texted, the dings are coming off the hook, you haven't even had a chance to lunch, and somebody comes in and says, can I speak to you for four hours about a problem I've got? You can get very upset. Jesus is upset. But he was pre-upset because he was going to sort out an injustice. All of these things collided. Have you ever had a day at all collided on you? And you said some things you shouldn't have said. You made some actions you shouldn't have. And you regret it. But you look at it and it all seems inevitable anyway. Talk to Jesus about it. He gets it. He was there. He wasn't floating along doing story after story. These stories collide and their edges cut you when they do. On reaching Jerusalem, we're going to finish the story later. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. I'm going to have to stop and talk about this. We've got to pay real close attention to what's going on here. First of all, we have to start with the person of Jesus. When we see pictures of Jesus, they come almost entirely from the medieval ages, if you are a Western Christian. The Orthodox Christians have some earlier depictions of him, but not as many as you'd think. Um, that still came along a bit later, and all of their depictions are 2D. They don't make any statues. 
But you even if, you can buy Bibles today and you take a look and the pictures don't look anything like a first century Jew. Especially a first century Jew that Isaiah said would not be handsome. That his looks were not comely. That we hid as it were our faces from him. So he wasn't good looking. The BBC way back, I don't know, maybe the late 70s, early 80s did a series on the life of Christ. That's the British Broadcasting Corporation. One of the two main channels in uh, British TV. And they, all kinds of anger fell upon them. Not because the series wasn't biblical and, and it was okay. You know, it was just okay. It was because the character they'd chosen to play Jesus was short, had, you know, pretty significant hair loss and a pot belly. And people did not appreciate that. They wanted their Jesus to be strong, handsome, and probably white and blonde haired too. And he wasn't. And another thing you have to remember about Jesus is that he wasn't small and he wasn't delicate. His father was almost certainly a stonemason. That's what that word really means. We used to think it meant carpenter for a long time, but we found a lot more old stuff that we can read and know how to use the word better and what it meant better. So Jesus, having schooled there for 30 years, would have had scars, maybe some twisted fingers that were broken. Uh, not broken, no bones were broken. Twisted with ligaments. Um, he might have had scars on his face from chips flying up. And he would have had muscle. Because you don't mess with rocks unless you do. So when he goes into the temple courts and starts driving people out, there's something which doesn't happen. You ready for this? They had guards. They had guards in a temple court, and they were not you know, minimum wage guards. These were elite. I've heard people say they were like the Green Berets for the Jews. Well, Green Berets have a totally different mission, so I don't think that's really appropriate. I would say probably more like an infantry sergeant type thing, um, whether Marine Corps or Army, something like this, trained, well-schooled, and knows how to do this, military-type police, that, that is probably a lot closer to it. And that guard was there to make sure that um, no, nobody unqualified entered the temple courts. So no Gentiles and no Jews that had visible deformities or uh, omissions, like missing fingers or the like, they were there to keep the order as well because Jewish people coming in from all over came to the temple and when you bring people together, there's always somebody who's going to kick it off, right? None of them try to stop Jesus because he wasn't a wimp. He was muscular, scarred, and when he looked at you, you knew you'd been looked at. And they backed off. It reminds me of something. Many, many years ago when I was young, I came to Alabama, to the University of Alabama in Birmingham, because they had, at that time, and I don't know if they do today, the best <clears throat> criminal justice degree that was to be had, and I wanted it. So I went there, and that was my first degree. Um, it, was, it was a very good experience as well, except <laughs> right before I graduated, they, uh, they sent us down to Draper Prison right outside of Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, it was a mess. It was overcrowded, big time. And it wasn't anything like the prisons I had seen in books 
and on telly and in movies. This was very different. You weren't in your individual cells, everything orderly. You were in a dormitory and there could be 30 to 60 guys there and the bar is just at the end. And I was surprised by many things. Of course, I was first of all shocked. I had to, a basket's lowered from the tower. I have to put my wallet, my keys, my belt, all in that. And I'm going, well, this is starting off a little difficult. And remember, I was just a teenager. Uh, I started university early. So I was a teenager, a small guy. Um, entering this now, I looked around and the guards didn't have guns. Well, correctional officers don't carry guns inside the prison, but I didn't know that. I thought, you know, they're American. They probably have five guns on, you know. And I looked at one of them and I said, you don't have guns. He goes, no, they'll take it away from me. Well, that didn't comfort me. And then I said, These, this is a dormitory and I'm supposed to go in the back of that. And he said, yeah. I said, so what happens if people, a fight breaks out? Are you going to come in and get me? And every guard that I asked that said, no. And I looked at him and I said, why? And they said, basically, we get minimum wage plus a bit. It's not worth it to die over that. We'll wait till we get a crowd of us, then we'll come in. But that could take a while. <coughs> that was a day I decided I wanted a career change. So I finished the degree. But I think of that every time I read this. Jesus comes in driving out those who were buying and selling there. But watch how he does it. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple's court. Now, Mark tells the story different than the others. The others say that he made a whip. And he drove them out. In fact, if you read John, it seems like he did it twice. Um, and I'm not sure uh, what to do with that, frankly. But if you read them and put them all together, you find out that Jesus didn't lose his temper and go nuts here. He overturned the tables of the money changers. What's going on there? Have you ever traveled? Have you ever traveled to a different country? You land in the airport and you have no money that works. Now, back in the day, even 20, 30 years ago, it was hard to have a credit card that worked. And the idea of an ATM that would accept your credit card and put things out in the local currency, they charged heavy fees. So you'd look around, and there would be this booth area called the Bureau de Chance, the Change Bureau. And you look up, and they'll say, we'll give you this much for this and these different. And it's always high. You're always losing money because they got you. You're at the airport. What are you going to pay the cab with? Again, now, a lot of them will do contact payment, uh, contactless, you know, with your phone or the like. But at the time, no. These people coming in to worship God, sometimes when they arrived, didn't have their sacrifice with them. Maybe they started with one, but then it got lame, got sick, got a cut. You can't bring any sacrifice in unless it's perfect. So you have to buy one there. But you just can't buy one with your money. What are you talking about? You're from over there. You have to change it into our money. And they were cheating their fellow citizens of the kingdom of God and his chosen people. They were cheating them. They were making money off of them. Jesus overturns the table. Others had sacrificial animals there. You know, cattle is mentioned in particular. And Jesus drove them out. But if you read the others 
you find out he didn't just overturn the tables with birds on them. He told the people with birds, take your birds and get them out. Then he would have overturned their tables. Why is that important? You can go pick up your coins later. You can go get your cattle later. They don't tend to be free range and, and you leave the country. You can find them. If he overthrew where the birds were in the cages, you can't get your birds back. Nobody lost a penny because of Jesus that day. So did he lose his temper? No, he used his temper. And he used his brain. He was smart, but thorough. And none of the guards are going to stop him. They're back. This is more than their job's worth right here. Cleaning it out. And he wouldn't let anybody carry merchandise through. No. And as he taught them, he said, it is, uh, taught, as he taught them, hang on, he's throwing things around. He's also telling them, gather around. I'm going to tell you what's going on and why. So he is not nuts. He's not in a frenzy. This is planned and controlled. He said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Isaiah 56 verse 7. That's always, that's very, very important. Even back in Isaiah's days, it wasn't just for Jews. It was, we were told it was going to be for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And that's pretty much a quote of Jeremiah 7, 11, by the way. The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. I don't know why that's not underlined in the Bible. You know, somebody comes in and disrupts the worship service like we talked about last week. So we got to find a way to kill him. No, it wasn't just that. They were getting enriched by this. They were corrupt. Think about it this way. And I, can't, I cannot speak to all the, the nations that are, are watching this. I'm just going to use the American one that I know about and the British one, the United Kingdom. If you look at their budget and look at the money set aside for care for the poor, and then, whatever definition they use for poverty or poor, you find that number, and you divide that into the other, you would find that if we just directly gave them the money, they would be incredibly well off. It'd be, um, the last I did the math, be like $170,000 per person. But they don't get that. Who's getting that? How many hands are in this till along the way by the people who say, we're here to feed the poor. And yet, when they leave Congress or the Senate or the White House, they leave as millionaires. They didn't enter that way. And you're going, how did this happen? Because the salaries we pay our politicians are not extraordinarily high by any stretch. So how did that happen? That's what's going on here religiously. Those of you that are Americans know that America has religious TV. They even have religious TV channels that you can stream or part of a basic cable. That is not true in most countries. In most countries, that's not acceptable, but it was here and is here. And you remember that the heyday of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, preachers becoming millionaires, bilking people out of their social security, out of all of their money, because we got to do that. And then people find they've got private planes. They have Rolls Royces. Their dog houses, I'm not making this up, are air conditioned. 
and the people that they're asking to do without food and medicine to send the money are being duped. That's what's going on here. And the chief priests and such are looking around going, um, our income flow is now in danger because this was the height of it. We're coming up to Passover. Everybody's coming in. This is like uh, Black Friday in the American shopping um, calendar. You know, that, you, we got to make all of our money before Christmas that'll last us through the lean part of the year. This is, they're seeing everything at risk now. They want to kill him for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. People, my friends, this world is terrified of Jesus Christ. It hates him because they're scared of him. It hates him because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If Jesus had said, take any path you choose, be who you are. Feel what you feel. Identify as you identify, and everything will be fine because everything... People would say, cool, like him. But Jesus said, no, there are realities. There are standards. There are guardrails on this pathway. And people hate Jesus for that. And they fear him. They fear him that he might have told the truth. And that one day they will find out they have taken the wrong path. I hurt for the world but I understand the world. And I know why they're so terrified of him. Just like these were. I talked to a leader of a church. Uh, in that particular non-denominational denomination. He was called an elder. And generally you have more than one elder over congregation. He'd been an elder for a long time. Um, what a bad guy. He, he just wasn't a bad guy. Uh, I knew him. And had known him for years. Whenever uh, he invited me to play golf with some friends, and so we're out there playing golf, and I'm talking to him back and forth, and I can't remember how it led up, I, because what he said shocked me. He said, you know, I love the, the Sermon on the Mount, but if I were to try to run my business according to the Sermon on the Mount, I'd be bankrupt. And I stopped, and I looked at him, and I said, excuse me? And he goes, well, you have to understand, church is church, business is business. Whoa. I looked at him and I said, what would be wrong with going bankrupt for Jesus? He goes, well, I, I wouldn't have this, I wouldn't have that. I said, first of all, you don't know, because you've admitted that you've never given this a try. Um, we talked a bit. Did I convince him? No, not at all. I don't think I was prepared for, to make that argument, frankly, because it was such a shock to me. But that's what's going on here. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Uh, there's literally no room in the inn when you're getting close to pa Passover. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree. Told you, told you, coming back to that. Withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus basically goes, cool, no big deal. And the way he says it, though, is much more religiously than that, you know, churchy. Here he goes. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. 
Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourselves into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. You you won't be able to do it, but it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it already and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Um, I, I don't really want to upset anybody, but I'm going to, all right? When I was a boy, this seemed like a very unreasonable promise because I'd tried it. Uh, I remember my first crisis of faith hit when I was about eight or nine years old, and I asked God to give me muscles. Woke up the next day, no muscles. And I'm gone. I did everything right. I went to church, ticked all the right boxes. I believe in him, sang the songs. In our family, you even sang a hymn before you ate. Uh, you sang a hymn as you drove out of the driveway. We really did. Uh, there were different prayers that we prayed through the day. I mean, it was a, a Jesus-saturated home, and these mountains were not moving. A couple of things. One, Semitic language. We'll get to that. Here's the thing that may upset some of you. Who is he talking to? Is he talking to me? Is he talking to you? Is he talking to everybody? Or is he talking to his apostles who are about to face the maelstrom, the the overwhelming hurricane of all hurricanes when it comes to culture, death, life, surprise, fear, all of that. He's talking to them. Now, and there's one sense that if we want a mountain moved, we can move a mountain. It has always struck me how people in developing countries, we used to call them third world, but I think that's considered insults now. So we call them developing countries. There's a mudslide that takes out a village. There's a, a, a hurricane, a typhoon that hits. And you look and it's just rubble. And you see people who have nothing take a bucket at a time and fill it up and hand it off down the, and they dump it and they bring it back. They have got to move their mountain by themselves. A bucket at a time. It's just, and they do. They do. They work incredibly hard. They make it back. And I'm just, wow. But is that what is happening here? I think it's more Semitic languages. Mountain does not necessarily mean a big pile of rock and dirt. Many of us have had mountains moved out of our lives. We've survived. You've survived. Abuse, divorce, neglect, um, health struggles. And some of you are going, I haven't survived it yet. I'm just still going. No, you have survived it or you couldn't doubt what I'm saying. You're still alive. When I used to run a counseling practice, it's one of the things I would always ask people. I hear a problem. It's a horrible problem. We're going to work on the problem. But I want you to, first of all, Work with me on building a list of the things that kept you alive and pointed forward so far. Because the fact is, as bad as this problem is, you're still alive. How'd you do that? It's to show them the strength they've already got, and then we'll add tools later. He tells us, you can do this because I'm with you. But remember, while you're doing it, forgive others. He's about to face a mountain. What's he going to do when that hits him? He's going to forgive others. We have to stop. There's more to come. 
This is a pretty exciting week in the life of Christ. We'll talk more about it next week.